Al Jazeera podcast. The human cost of Israel's war on Gaza is beyond calculation. Lives lost, families destroyed, tens of thousands of injured. But what about the economic cost and who will pay? Will Israel contribute anything to rebuild communities devastated by its bombs? I'm James Bays, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's discuss all of this some more with our panel of guests. In Doha, we have Tamar Kamut. He's from Gaza and is an assistant professor of public policy at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. In Istanbul, we have Helene Sarah Artam, Turkish foreign policy specialist and associate professor of international relations at the Istanbul Midaniyet University. And also in Doha, Sultan Barakat, a professor of public policy at the Hamad bin Khalifa University. He's also the author of the report After the Conflict, Reconstruction and Development in the Aftermath of War. We clearly have the right experts to discuss this subject. But before I talk about the devastating economic effects, I think we need to remember that the death toll is uh, continuing to mount. Uh, Tamar, to you first, a a really grim moment, I think, um, in, uh, in this conflict, because for the first time, the Ministry of Health in Gaza, because of the situation in the hospitals in Gaza City, because of the communication um, uh, problems, uh, they've not been able to update their death toll uh, figures. So, for now, it seems the dead in Gaza aren't even being counted. Uh, James, sadly, yes, that's, uh, that's the reality now in Gaza. There is no communication with the Ministry of Health or with hospitals, and uh, <clears throat> The humanitarian situation is obviously very dire, extremely dire. And and also, more or less, uh, the international community so far has failed Gaza many times uh, to bring ceasefire uh, on entrance of necessary aid, on even helping uh, creating safe uh, humanitarian corridors for Palestinians to be able to leave or evacuate. And name it. It's um, it's a it's you know to be a Palestinian in these modern times. It's um, it's something hard. Palestinians are paying a really heavy price. And how difficult is it for you, coming from Gaza, watching this from afar? Because these are family and friends. Yes, James. Family, friends. Personally, I have worked uh, almost uh, seven years in Gaza with the United Nations Development Programme, which has, which its own headquarters have been bombed today. It's located next to Al Shifa Hospital, and I have been in charge of major reconstruction projects in the Gaza Strip. I have seen the peaceful times of Gaza, and I've seen also, and I have lived conflict and reconstructing also times in Gaza. So I know, I know every aspect of it. I know uh, the, the suffering people went through, and I know also the humiliating situation and the, and the enduring effects of occupation, which never brought any sense of normality to Gazans. Sultan, um, when we look at the devastation, um, the um, humanitarian part of the United Nations says 45% of Gaza's homes have either been destroyed or damaged. And then we look, we see those pictures of people who are uh, moving uh, with small backpacks, moving from one part of Gaza to another, not knowing where anywhere is safe, trying to find some sort of shelter. The current figures from the UN are over 1.5 million people internally displaced. But I've also seen reports that the Israeli government, they were told it's 1.7 million. 
Yes, well, that could be, uh, I mean, the figure, whether it's 1.5 or 1.7, it's beyond uh, the ability of any nation to uh, immediately rebuild and to cater for the emergency needs of these populations, even when you have your borders open and you have the international community coming to your help. I mean, you just need to look at how long it took uh, countries like Turkey to recover from the immediate aftermath of the earthquake or Morocco recently and measure accordingly. In the context of Gaza, the biggest problem will always remain the total siege of the of the area. Israel continues to hold control over the, the airspace, the waterways, and the uh, access from the sea and, and land, and will make it uh, difficult, as we have all witnessed. They made it impossible for humanitarian assistance to come. And as soon as they start thinking of rebuilding, they will come in also to make it very, very difficult for material and uh, goods to come in for the purpose of reconstruction. And this is one of the reasons why, in your introduction, you referred to the cumulative damage in, in, uh, in Gaza, that some of the damage that occurred as uh, back in uh, 2009 is still being uh, dealt with. It hasn't totally recovered from uh, that war. Now, not to mention the bombings that followed in 2014 to 2021 and so on. So um, we have a, a unique situation in the world where you have a, a population of now 2.2 million people or 2.5 million people uh, in a very uh, dense, densely populated area where uh, their own uh, enemy who is uh, subjecting them to this violence is also being asked to help in its reconstruction. We can discuss this maybe in more detail later in the in our discussion. Helene, um, you, you heard there, Sultan talked about the example, we all remember earlier this year, of that earthquake that struck Syria and Turkey. Um, that was an appalling natural disaster. Here we have a humanitarian emergency where things are continuing and those trying to flee uh, are being targeted um, and, and that targeting continues. Yeah, it took um, months and maybe years uh, previously in Turkey and it's not already settled in the earthquake zones to reconstruct the cities to turn the uh, way of living into normal situation. And emotionally, people are devastated as well in, in, in such places. So I can't imagine what the people in Gaza are feeling and, you know, going through in these very difficult days. Uh, unfortunately, that's the case, and that has been the case for Gazan people for so many years. It's, it's a conflict more than 75 years, and uh, for several times they went through such kind of with such big attacks, attacks by Israel, and unfortunately we are witnessing uh, one of them again. Tamar, we're talking about the destruction that we're seeing, the pictures we're seeing, buildings gone, a wasteland. I'd, I'd be interested in your, when you look at those pictures, what, as a Gazan, do you think? Because they're not just buildings, are they? This is the history, this is the culture, the heritage of Gaza that's being destroyed. Uh, of course, James. I mean, I mean, obviously, Israel here is uh, uh, demolishing any prospects for, uh, for uh, you know, for Gazans to uh, to come back to resilience to themselves. I mean, when you look at the scale of this destruction, and knowing that Gaza is an open air prison, an enclave. 
and every piece of uh, every meter of cement, every house, every uh, civil facility, every road that is being uh, has been demolished so far. Uh, realistically speaking, uh, reconstructing Gaza after this war in in a normal setup where access of aid is not restricted, restricted. Israel has no vetting uh, 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 over aid. It might take years, you know, I mean, as, as my colleague from Turkey said, I mean, even in Turkey, which is a normal country, which has also received vast assistance and, and help from many other nations still uh, coping with the aftermath of the earthquake. What we see in Gaza is an earthquake, but it's a man-made disaster by the Israelis. And uh, for me, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, to, to, to discuss the future of Gaza and the possibilities of reconstructing it, it's hard to talk about it without starting discussing the scenarios and how this war will end in Gaza. Because in where I come from, and knowing the Israelis, and know also the complicit positions of the international community, including many donors who, who provide assistance to the Palestinians and selectively choose where money should go and where it should not go, uh, this, this, I mean, uh, it all depends really on, on how will this war end. I mean, if it ends with Hamas is still in power, uh, I think the misery will continue. And I have to say it bluntly here, uh, because uh, Israel will be will have utter control of the process. So far, what they have publicly declared, the Israelis, uh, that they envisage a future without Hamas, and I don't think they will be able to achieve it. But the thing is, if this war ends with the same previous status quo, plus the vast destruction and loss in life, and, and Israel, again, retains full control of any future reconstruction processes, we're talking about even a more dangerous scenario of Gaza being emptied slowly from its own people, because the living conditions and the limitations uh, that Israel will put on this such reconstruction process will make it so hard for people to stay for long and wait for aid to come and to regain a normal life again. Sultan, we clearly don't know how this is going to end, but I do think we've probably reached a pretty important stage in this, have we not now? Because Israel seems to have succeeded in shutting down the hospitals in Gaza City, the last places of care and refuge uh, in the north. And we're now seeing these thousands of people who've been intimidated to leave their homes one assumes because of Israel's stated aim to to um, to destroy Hamas, this means even more bombardment and destruction is likely on the way for Gaza City very soon. Yes, I mean it looks like uh, Netanyahu has now made up his mind to slice off the 20% of the land uh, to the north of Gaza, which includes much of the Gaza City, and he probably aim to turn that into a no-man's land, uh, a security zone similar to the one Israel created in Lebanon following the invasion of Lebanon in 1982. And uh, this would—maybe uh, uh, this is where he was referring to total security control within that particular sector, so that he pushes the resistance as far as possible from the main cities of Tel Aviv and Ascalon. And then from there, he would want to exercise uh, further incursions into the rest of Gaza uh, to provide uh, for, uh, for security, as he, again, as he put it, to have the ability to make sure 
that uh, security is held within within Gaza and, and there will be no threat from Gaza to Israel. Now, of course, this is his own scenario, and uh, it is very early to say whether he'll be able to achieve it or not. But uh, to get to, to that point, uh, he is having to destroy much of, of the area. I mean, now we're talking about almost 50 percent of the, of the housing stock. Uh, I suspect probably more. Uh, the infrastructure totally is, is, is now a ruin. Uh, hospitals, schools, all those people that he's pushed out from northern Gaza have no temporary refugee camps to, to seek refuge in. Most of them are in schools, which means that we have a whole generation out of school now. Uh, and uh, given the speed in which things happen in Gaza, when they take refuge in schools, it takes another year, year and a half to get them out of schools into their repaired housing and so on. So education is out of the equation for a long, long time to come. And of course, the unemployment continues to be very high. Uh, and will get worse because of the siege. Uh, in normal context of reconstruction, connectivity to the rest of the world is very, very important in, in terms of allowing not just the capacities and the skills to come in to help and consult, but also the material. It's, it's uh, very few places around the world are self-sufficient in the sense that they can generate their own reconstruction uh, hardware. Uh, so, uh, by cutting this uh, uh, connectivity to the rest of the world, whatever plans are put forward to Gaza are going to be twice as uh, difficult and problematic and will take a long, long time to implement, which has been the case, as I was saying earlier, uh, and the experience of Gaza since 2009. Well, let's look at the previous four wars in Gaza. The senseless cycle of damage has cost billions of dollars. The three-week war that began in December 2008 and ended in January 2009 caused destruction amounting to $2 billion. That's according to the World Bank. Hamas says the eight days of Israeli attacks in 2012 cost Gaza $1.2 billion. Four to six billion dollars was the estimated cost of rebuilding Gaza after 2014. And the damage and economic losses from the Israeli attacks in 2021 amounted to more than half a billion dollars. Helene, just remind us, in the past, who has been, what have been the main countries involved in the efforts to rebuild Gaza? I know your own country, where you sit, Turkey is one of them, and our other guests are, are, are speaking from Qatar, which is another one of the major funders in the past. That's correct. Uh, actually, Turkey has increased its uh, capacity a lot, a very uh, high amount of, of foreign aid, let's say. And uh, Palestine has been always uh, in the first uh, three of these countries, uh, as far as I remember, Syria, Somalia, and the third one, is Palestine, especially uh, those countries who are receiving foreign aid from Turkey. Uh, for that reason, I would like to once again underline that Turkey aims to do its best uh, to reconstruct uh, Gaza, of course. But there is an irony here, unfortunately, that uh, although President Erdogan is uh, showing clearly his reaction against uh, what Israel is doing uh, against the Gazan people, at the same time, he is also choosing a careful language, although the, the amount, the tone that he's using against Israel has slightly increased. Still, I can say that he is quite careful about his words. That is because uh, we and many other countries who are um, giving their soul, their heart to the people of Gaza to make their lives better, uh, unfortunately, have to deal with Israel uh, first. Uh, 
So we have to keep the contact, preserve our contact, diplomatic ties with Israel in order to do something for the people who are stuck uh, in Gaza. Well, Helene, that brings me to what we saw at that um, Islamic uh, Arab League summit that took place uh, in Riyadh. And mm -hmm. you mentioned the comments of President Erdogan. Uh, he's calling on Israel to foot the bill for the reconstruction in Gaza. Let's listen to what he had to say. A third point is compensation. It is one of the factors that Israel is acting recklessly is that on every occasion they escape payment of compensation for each and every crime they commit from destruction to the killing. Israel must pay compensations. It is like a favored, cuddled boy. Yeah, accusing Israel of being a spoiled child, Tamar, and saying that Israel should pay reparations that's not going to happen, is it? Uh, as long as there is no international will to make Israel accountable uh, for these uh, for these crimes, you know, uh, of course it will not happen. I mean, so far, I mean, uh, since the creation of Oslo in 1949, the international community has been committed to funding and supporting, you know, the creation of of. Uh, of Palestinian institutions to, uh, in a hope to achieve the, the, the permanent uh, uh, peace, you know, getting to a permanent peace and establishing a Palestinian state. And billions of dollars have been invested in this project, uh, not only from Turkey. I mean, the European Union is a, very, is a major donor. The U.S. is a donor, Japan, Arab countries, Islamic countries. But the problem is that since the creation of Oslo, Israel has been more or less behaving as if it's in an occupation five stars mood. Like keeping occupation does not uh, cause Israel anything because there is uh, a third party, which is the donors and the international community, paying for the bill. And the whole idea of Oslo was built around a five years time frame where it should lead to an independent Palestinian state. And then aid will be concentrated on supporting a viable Palestinian state. But because of the failed peace process, this has never uh, been the case. So what we happened? What happened is a failed peace process that have started from 1949 till now. You still have the donors committed to helping the Palestinians at the same time maintaining the occupation. So it's a very dysfunctional status quo where Israel feels it's at ease of doing anything, targeting people, targeting infrastructure, and this tax money that comes from all over the world. The Turks pay it, the Europeans pay it, the Arabs pay it. It's wasted, and no one is able to put Israel, make Israel accountable for this. So yes, if there is any hope that the peace process will be revived, hopefully after the end of this war, there should be a very serious discussion by international community on ensuring that there is no such thing as free aid, and that Israel should be also accountable for any targeting of this aid. Otherwise. And I'm also all in for what President Erdogan said. For Israelis to feel the price, they should be accountable and pay as well. Pay for whatever they uh, inflict on Palestinians, be in compensation for victims, be in compensation for infrastructure, and name it. And also, uh, James, there is something also we have to talk about as well. Let's not forget that Hamas emerged in the Palestinian political life also as a democratically elected movement because there was an election in 2000. And six, and the international community 
approved and blessed these elections, and it was described as an and as as a, as, a, as, a, as a democratic one. Uh, so uh, donors also they cannot go and pick and choose when it comes to helping Palestinians. There should be no uh, discrimination when it comes to aid. Uh, okay. Hamas let, let, been... let, let, let me bring in yeah. Sultan now, just on reconstruction in the past, because I know you've done a lot of work in this. Um, and I'm getting a bit technical here, but there was something called the Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism. Can you tell me how that hampered reconstruction in the past? Right. Well, that mechanism was introduced in the aftermath of 2014, and it was intended to ensure that uh, the building material coming into Gaza does not have dual use. In other words, cannot be used to manufacture weapons. So steel pipes, uh, a lot of uh, steel items in general, uh, cement, etc., could not come into the Gaza Strip unless Israel verifies where every piece goes. And there's a very sophisticated mechanism. It was run by the United Nations, uh, supervised also by uh, the EU and Israel, and in agreement with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and it, it allows Israel to follow every piece of equipment where it ended up, in which building exactly. This is how, why... How, how Sultan, how did that hinder the reconstruction efforts? Well, it, it, has, it made it extremely slow to bring material in. And, uh, and as such, uh, you know, you couldn't really line up people to be able to do the work in a timely fashion. It also made it extremely expensive. When you have a siege like that, uh, we have an economic concept of scarcity sort of sets in. Everything that you that you that you can get your hands on in in Gaza becomes ten, ten, ten times as expensive as anywhere else outside Gaza. Now, before 2014, there was a, a booming reconstruction phase between 2009. Well, exactly started maybe 11 and 12 under Morsi, when Morsi was the president in Egypt, he turned a blind eye to the tunnels that the Palestinians had established between Gaza and uh, the Egyptian territory. And there was, at the peak, there were about 300 of them. And they were able to smuggle in a lot of material, which reflected extremely positively on the economy inside Gaza, particularly on employment. Construction and reconstruction is the main form of employment for young men in Gaza. Uh, and it's been going into 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 peaks uh, every now and then. But in general, this is what people can do in that confinement. OK, uh, so let, that, let me bring that, it. Let me bring in Tamar again now, if I can. Uh, Tamar, I want to go back to that summit in Riyadh because um, there was economic measures that that summit of Islamic and Arab um, leaders could have made. Apparently, in the preparatory measures, they were talking about all sorts of punitive uh, measures against Israel, cutting diplomatic and economic ties, leveraging Arab energy and financial power against Israel, banning Israeli aircraft from Arab airspace, and they didn't agree any of it. Your reaction? Uh, not surprised at all, James. I mean, let's go back in history. Remember... Uh... The 1982 siege of Lebanon, a siege of the PLO in Beirut, when Israel invaded Lebanon uh, 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 to get rid of the PLO. Uh, at that time, we only had one Arab country that had diplomatic relations with Israel, which was Egypt, which, which had a peace agreement with Israel after 1973. And most Arab countries did, did not have any diplomatic relations with Israel. And still, 
they failed to do anything to help the PLO. Okay, uh, we've not got much time though. Tamar, we, Tamar, we've got not much time. You're, what, yeah. what, what didn't happen at Riyadh? If you could address that very quickly. Uh, uh, most Arab countries, especially the ones who have normalized relations with Israel, they put their strategic interests with Israel and the West over the Palestinian interests. Your reaction, please, Sultan, to what happened at that summit? I agree. I think it was a missed opportunity to uh, come out with a single voice that represents the Arab and Muslim nations, similar to the one they've exercised uh, in the UN General Assembly. You know, they came together and they managed to get that resolution through. The minimum should have been to cut uh, political uh, uh, diplomatic relations with Israel. I think they should have also uh, uh, introduced the possibility of uh, economic sanctions and uh, also uh, maybe uh, some kind of playing with the, with the oil prices, which will then uh, make the United States think twice about the uh, unwavering support that's now giving to, to Israel. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. Our guests were Tama Kamut, Helene Sarah Artam and Sultan Barakat. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Paul Chijurgeon, Fungi Nguyen and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Deepak Pushkaran. The programme was edited by Manish Matai, Zainabada and Joda Fries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on Monday for our next episode. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.